Amen. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Now, so far, the Apostle Paul has been laying a lot of groundwork inside of this book. He's been laying the stage for a lot of explanation about the Christian life. We've dealt with a lot of the big ideas of the faith. Who is God? What has He done for us in Christ? What is the role of the Holy Spirit in all of that? We've laid these foundational concepts, and then we've talked about our need for salvation and how that works. We're dead in our trespasses and sin, but God is rich in mercy. We are saved by grace through faith. These things that are central to our belief in who God is, who Jesus is, what the role of the Holy Spirit is. So we've been talking about salvation and this need for grace most recently, that it is a gift that is given to us. We receive it in faith, in trust, in Jesus Christ. Now, there are a lot of uh, consequences to the doctrine of grace that belongs to the Christian faith. And guys, one of the outcomes of our doctrine of grace, that salvation is a gift that God gives, is that this is a gift that God makes available to absolutely everybody, no matter their stage or position in life. Okay? This is why grace sometimes rubs us the wrong way. You mean even them? Yes, even them can become recipients of the grace and the gift of God. You see, guys, we're learning something when we talk about who God is and how He saves us. Everyone stands equal before God, every human being. Every one of us is equally separated in our sin, and every one of us is equally a target of the grace of God, equally offered salvation. The story of this gift is amazing. And that's why that hymn endures. Is that we come to we come to terms with the grace of God and, and we just we just this is amazing grace. And so, man, let's talk about that. Let's sing about that. This really is a stunning reality. And then Paul adds, as he's walking through the first few verses of Ephesians chapter 2, we've talked about grace, but then he begins to speak of that you and I are created to live according to the works that God created us to live in. We receive this grace and we are saved, and now life is supposed to change. So this then means that lifestyle begins to change in significant ways. Our relationships, our priorities, our decisions, the way we go about life, interact with each other and with God and on and on, it makes actual changes inside of our lives. So what then exactly does that look like? How is life in Christ different than the way of life that we lived away from Christ or before Christ? How is life in Christ different than the way the world without Christ tells us life ought to be lived? These are significant questions. But this is exactly where we pick up now in this passage of Scripture. Paul is going to shift from talking about this vertical relationship. This is God and Christ and salvation and the work of the Spirit. Speaking of that vertical relationship, he now is going to add the horizontal the vertical does not disappear, but now he begins to talk about our relationships with each other under the umbrella of life in Christ. So here are some of these big ideas. They're going to help us sort of make sense of this particular passage of Scripture here in Ephesians chapter 2. Our first thought is this. Without Christ, human beings tend to get relationships wrong. You know, that's a... 
significant thought. We're going to watch how Paul unfolds that and deals with that here in Ephesians 2. Now, this does not mean that you and I, without Christ, are constantly rotten, vicious, evil people. It's not what that means. But what it does mean is this. Without Christ, the enemy will manipulate us to divide us and make us think that that's normal. Okay? Without Christ, the enemy will manipulate us to divide us and make us think that that is normal. Without Christ, we tend to get these relationships wrong. In fact, a lot of the book of Ephesians is about redeeming relationships that the world breaks. So without Christ, we tend to get relationships wrong. Secondly, learning our identity in Jesus Christ teaches us who everyone else is as well. When we read about or think about learning what our identity in Christ is, more often than not, we think in terms of who I am, and I have to fix my understanding of my identity. It's not in all of these other things, but it's in Christ. All of these other sources of identity and meaning, they fail me. It has to be in Christ. We're, we're thinking of ourselves, and rightfully so. But the language in this passage of Scripture this morning is not necessarily about me. It's about how I treat you. And when I learn what identity in Christ is like, it is supposed to teach me your value in Christ and how now I ought to love you with the love of Christ. And then finally, guys, the thought <clears throat> that shows up throughout this text, different vocabulary and in different ways, Christ is our unity. Christ is what unifies us. Christ is our peace. The primary identity of every follower of Jesus Christ is in Christ. If you are so built to spend some time studying Scripture this way, simply spend some time in the book of Ephesians paying attention to every time Paul uses this phrase or a phrase like it, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. And once you become sensitive to that language, it's everywhere. Okay? Our primary identity is in Jesus Christ. And anyone becoming a follower of Jesus finds themselves in him just as we are in him, and we become a part of the universal body of Jesus Christ. We do. And Christ becomes what unifies us. He becomes our peace. All right, so let's read this passage. It's going to be Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 11, and we're going to make our way through verse 18. <clears throat> so the passage goes like this. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself 
one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the Christ, or excuse me, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to you who are near, for through him we both have access to one, by one spirit to the Father. Fascinating passage of Scripture. Incredible passage of Scripture. I think the consequences, the implications of this passage of Scripture are maybe even a lot more dynamic than we would just sort of normally think. So hopefully this morning we're going to kind of make sense of this and, and try to grab hold of this and, and the kinds of revolutionary things that the gospel does because of Jesus Christ. So Paul, Paul begins by saying this. Now remember, you Gentiles, those of you who used to be called the uncircumcision by those who call themselves the circumcision, remember that you were alienated from Christ, but now you have been brought near. So Paul jumps immediately into this particular divide between Jew and Gentile. Now the vast majority of Christians who are in the city of Ephesus are being converted out of the Greek and Roman world, the non-Jewish world. The church in Ephesus, we know, is a mixture of Jews who are becoming Christians and non-Jews who are becoming Christians, okay? Probably most of them are Greek, they're non-Jew, they're Gentile. And this is the language that Scripture uses. They speak of Jews, those who are of the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and of Gentile. Now that term Gentile refers to literally everybody else. It's not one homogenous group of people, but in the church in Ephesus, you've got Jews who are becoming Christians, and then you've got all kinds of other tribes and ethnicities and languages and former pagan religious practices and on and on and on, a multitude of them. You see, Ephesus is a major city in the day. <clears throat> it's a port city. It's a trade city. Paul actually used this city as home base for two to three years to go from Ephesus to the surrounding region to speak back and forth to other smaller cities that were around this one. But it's a metropolitan city. It's a pluralistic city, ethnically, culturally, religiously. Now, here's what happens in a city like that with people like that. It is the same thing that still happens in cities like that with groups of people like that. You've got plenty of tension between every single one of those groups, okay? That's just the way that this city works. That's just the way that these things work. It doesn't take long to dig into the history itself of how the Greco-Roman world dealt with itself and dealt with other people and so forth to realize that there were distinct hatreds between all of these groups of people. Our tribe is our tribe, and your tribe is beneath our tribe. Our language is better than your language. Our God is better than your God. This is a consistent rule of life for these groups of people. So, they all start becoming Christians. They all start showing up to the same house. They sit next to each other. They begin breaking bread with each other. They begin worshiping and praying with each other. They are now in the same room, unified in Christ, where beforehand they had actually been taught to hate each other. 
What do you do with that? How do you deal with that? So you've got this multi-ethnic background, and it's full. The church becomes full of people of every kind of background and economic strata, including churches that have both masters and slaves in them. Paul's going to have to deal with this as the book moves on. So this is bound to cause some tensions. It is entirely natural for them and for us to bring the values of the world into the life of the church. The values that we grow accustomed to in the world around us. The language that we grow accustomed to. The, the values that we brought into the church before we were saved. It's, it's just natural. We just walk into church with those old values. But what we're learning is that now in Christ, a lot of those things have got to start changing. So Paul addresses those things and he addresses how they need to change. So there were plenty of uh, ethnic and economic and even gender tensions that were brought into the church from the culture around them. And Paul just goes straight for it at the beginning of this passage. He's talking to the Gentiles. And he said, you've been called the, uh, the uncircumcision. Uh, a, a, a little bit more of a literal translation of that particular phrase means you've been called the people of the flesh. It is an ethnic slur. And it's based on a physical difference between those who are Jews and those who are not Jews. What physically separated them, as far as the Jews were concerned, was this covenant of circumcision. And that was a big deal to the Jewish community because that was part of what made them distinct. It was literally part of their covenant that made them people who belonged to God. So it becomes critical to their identity, and when it is misused and misunderstood, it is used as an ethnic slur for those who are not Jewish. It's based on a very simple physical difference. But Paul says, look, you remember, you were called the people of the flesh, the uncircumcision. <clears throat> but what Paul does when he speaks of this language is he's trying to teach the church it is not the physical difference. We're not talking about that. We need to let that kind of division go because circumcision is a matter of the heart and relationship with Christ and not a physical difference. This was such an important issue to the early church, Jews becoming Christians, Gentiles becoming Christians, that Paul writes about it in almost every one of his books. It was everywhere. These divisions, these ethnic divisions, these physical divisions. And Paul says, we have to fix this. So here's how Paul puts it in the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. And he's speaking to everybody by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And we could have chosen one of a dozen passages of Scripture where Paul is saying it's a matter of your relationship with Christ and not the physical, ethnic differences that you think divide you. He said that's not something that should divide us any longer. So where Jews and even these other groups of people saw ethnic division intended to exploit it to devalue others, Paul says that's not the way we do things inside of the church. We are all one inside of Christ Jesus. So he begins to use all of this language. He's speaking primarily to the Gentiles who have become a part of the faith, but he uses imagery 
that uh, the Jews who have become a part of the faith would understand. So he's speaking to both groups of people at the same time as we walk through this passage of Scripture. He begins to use this language that makes sense to the Jewish community. They had been benefactors of the Old Testament law. They viewed that as being near to the things of God because God had revealed himself through Moses and through the prophets and through the law. And this is my covenant with you, and this is what relationship with me looks like. And that was given to the Jews. So in that sense, they understood themselves as being near to the things of God, and Gentiles were far away from the things of God. So Paul uses that language and that understanding that they had. He says, you Gentiles knew that you were apart from the commonwealth of Israel is an interesting word there, the community, the covenant community of Israel. They let you know that you were apart from that. You are a long way away from that. So he uses those images to say this has been misused to create these divisions, but now in Christ, what was a division has now been brought near. So this language becomes important to Paul as he deals with this issue. So, We get things like this in verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And then verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We're becoming accustomed to this language right now in the book of Ephesians. It's, remember, this book is dense. These thoughts are loaded right on top of each other. So we get to something like this, and Paul has, in one way or another, already introduced this to us, and now he's talking about the implications. Without Christ, we are without hope in this world. Without Christ, we are without hope in in what this life can be in God. We are without the hope of eternity with God. We talked about those things in the last couple of weeks. Without Christ, we are without hope. And he says, you knew that. You know that now, that without him, you were far from hope. But because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, because of his shed blood, hope has now been offered. Hope is now available. And we have been, and I love this language, every time I go through this, I just sort of get caught by this language. Christ has brought us near. He has grabbed a hold of a bunch of sinners who are dead in their trespasses and sins, who are by nature people who are enemies of God. He's gone out, and by his grace, through the shed blood of Jesus Christ upon the cross, he's grabbed people like that, and he's pulling them into himself. I love that imagery. We're not advancing, we're not climbing the ladder, we're not becoming better people, and then we are in the presence of God. He is drawing us into himself, whoever we are. And people who had been excluded from the family of God and had been told, you are a long way away from God, Christ shows up and he grabs those people and he pulls them in. These are some of the implications of salvation by grace, of what it means for you and me now to live this kind of life, to be these kinds of hands, these kinds of feet. So we've been pulled into hope. 
by Jesus Christ. Hang on to that, guys. The Spirit's even speaking some of that to us this morning. We are pulled into hope by Jesus Christ. And Paul keeps talking about those who are far off and those who are near, and Christ is speaking to all of them. He actually borrows Old Testament language about what God does to people who have rebelled against him but have turned back toward him. They have been dead in their sins, but they now find repentance. This is Old Testament language that he borrows to talk about what God is doing. Here's part of what, here's part of what Paul is referring to in the book of Isaiah, chapter 57. It's a story of those who have rebelled against God and now are turning back toward him. This is how Isaiah talks about it. Isaiah 57 says this, I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. Thank God for stuff like that in Scripture. God says, I have seen your ways, but I'm going to heal you anyway. <laughs> I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruits of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal them. Peace, peace. Those who are far off and those who are near, I will heal them all. So Paul says, if you're far off, there is hope in Christ because he will draw you near. If you think you are already close, there is only hope in Jesus Christ because he will draw you near as well. So Christ is our peace. And Paul grabs another image in verse 14. And he says that one of the things that Christ does is he breaks down these walls of hostility that exist between us. Now, here's an image where he's speaking specifically to the Jewish community in a literal sense, but it's an image that will make sense to everybody that he is talking to. So, in the temple that Herod had built that was uh, alive and active during the time of Christ and Paul in the New Testament, this temple was this gigantic complex that had several different courts of worship built into it. Now, the architecture of the temple worked a little bit like this. Um, at the very sort of end of the line, at the center of it, so to speak, was a small room called the Holy of Holies. And the idea was is this is where the presence of God dwelt. And so as you worshipped, you had this architecture of coming closer and closer and closer to the presence of God. But in Herod's temple, there were some really interesting literal walls that had been built. Now, if you were a Gentile, you were not biologically Jewish, but you had become a worshiper of God, a convert of sorts, you could go to the temple and worship God. But there was this outermost court called the court of the Gentiles and a wall that said, if you are Gentile, you cannot come any closer than this wall. So if you're Jewish, you can pass through the doors and go into the next court. If you were female, that's as far as you could go. The men could walk past the next wall into the next court, and that's the men's court, and that's where they got to worship. But they could only go so far because the priests could only go even further than that past the next wall. And then there was this final dividing curtain, technically, between the Holy of Holies and everything else, and only one man on one day of the year could actually enter that place. So the closer you get, the fewer and fewer people could actually get in there. So the Jewish community that's reading for this, this for the first time is going to hear Christ has broken down the walls of hostility between us. Some of them may have even made pilgrimages to Herod's temple and realized that I can only get so close, but in Christ, it's rubble. The things that we create to divide us up 
and say you're better than you are gone. And we have access directly into the presence of God. One of the last things that happened on the day of Christ's crucifixion was that the veil in front of the Holy of Holies was torn from top to bottom. We have access to the presence of God. So to them, this is an image that makes sense because they've either heard of it, they know of it, some of them have maybe even experienced it. The Gentiles who are coming to Christ and walking into these houses of worship and faith, they haven't seen Herod's temple or experienced that, but they have experienced the other kinds of walls that divide people that are just as real. Some of them have experienced them. Some of them have been creating these walls to divide people into their various forms of moral worth all their lives. But now that you're here, Paul says, you need to know something. All of those walls are trash. We are one in Christ. He has unified us. And be careful with that language in this text. Be aware of that language in this text. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. He has done, He has done, He has done. Christ is our unity. Christ is our peace. So guys, as far as Paul is concerned, as far as the gospel is concerned, what is it that breaks down these walls? Paul says over and over in different ways, Christ is our peace. Christ is the one who is our peace. Christ even abolishes, and this is some of what Paul says. This is why he speaks of the laws and the ordinances and the commonwealth, the community of Israel. Christ even comes and he abolishes all of the misuse of the Old Testament law that divides people. And what Christ does, instead of creating a group of people here that are Jewish and then a group of people over here that are Gentile and a group of people over here who are male, he doesn't do any of that. Paul keeps saying he takes all of that and he makes one body, one man inside of him. He is constantly tearing these things down in the church, in Jesus Christ. So here's one of the radical things that happens in this passage of Scripture that Paul is constantly trying to get the church to figure out, and quite frankly, the church is still wrestling to figure this out. Do Gentiles have to become Jews in order to become Christians? No. Do Jews have to give up their ethnic heritage in order to follow Jesus Christ? No. We are all one in Jesus Christ. Now, this particular division, this ethnic division, these kinds of slurs, um, these kinds of legalistic standards, you have to do this, you have to be this in order to become a Christian, it was such a matter of tension in the early church, it was the first business meeting that they called, okay? Literally the first business meeting. Acts chapter 15, your text doesn't call it the business meeting of the early church because you would skip right over it and you'd move on to chapter 16. It's the council at Jerusalem. There were a group of people who had become Christians, and they'd become Christians out of the Jewish faith, and they were saying everyone has to be circumcised and obey the law of Moses to become Christians. And you got people like Paul and Barnabas who are saying, nope, that's not it at all. It's about what God does inside of the hearts of individuals. So they all show up in Jerusalem, and they have it out, and they deal with what this is, with what this means. So here's part of what is said by Peter in Acts chapter 15 regarding this kind of issue. 
Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither we nor our fathers nor we have been able to bear? We know we've been unable to do this. It is not by law. It is by grace. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. You hear that language that Paul has been um, resting on in Ephesians chapter 2? By grace through faith you are saved, not out of your works. It is the gift of God. Peter says, we're learning something. We're going to be saved by grace, not by circumcision or the law. They're going to be saved by grace, not by circumcision or by the law. It's powerful stuff happening inside of the early church. So we're learning as we read Paul. So we get a sense of what's going on here, that the gospel of Jesus Christ just does something completely different, completely different than what is typical outside of Jesus Christ. The gospel eliminates the performance needs to join. No circumcision, no legalism, no money, no status, no ethnic requirements. The gospel is getting rid of all of that. Admission into the family of God is by grace alone, through faith alone. You can come in as a Jew, as a Roman, as a Greek, as a male, as a female, and none of that goes away. This is fascinating, guys. None of that goes away. That's how you come to Christ. This is where you were born. This is how you were made by God himself. You were his workmanship even before you were born to live in these good works, and this is who you are, and you bring that right into the body of Christ. These things that are essential to how God created us don't change in the body of Christ. Our immorality will change in the body of Christ. Moral issues change in the body of Christ, but these things don't. This is such a big deal to Paul. He comes back to it several different times with at least three different churches. Here's how Paul says this in Galatians chapter 3. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. The way the world has compartmentalized you outside of the church doesn't belong here. The way the world devalues you because of who you are doesn't belong here because we are a one, and there's that language, in Christ. He says a very similar thing in Colossians chapter 3. Here, and he's speaking to the body of Christ, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. It's about what Jesus has done for us. It's about what Jesus is doing for you. It's about how Jesus views you and me learning to view you the way that Jesus does. Here, we are one in Christ. So the gospel changes the ethnic and social divisions that are created by the world by uniting us all in Jesus Christ. Paul uses this really powerful language. He says Christ actually kills that hostility. He kills it. Why would we resurrect it? Why would we do that when Christ is busy killing these hostilities? 
I want to think about this for a couple of minutes. Do you guys promise to be patient with me for a few moments? Good. <laughs> I told you every now and then you're going to have to put up with um, Professor Phil every now and then. Um, but this is important stuff. And it's very important for us to understand things like this through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ and be as clear on these things as we possibly can be. So if I told you that there was a point of view rampant in parts of our culture that classified the value and morality of people based purely on their skin color, gender, or social status, what would you call that? We would use words like racism and prejudice, right? And on and on the story would go, we would use these words and say, these ideas we know are rampant in our culture, and they're evil and they're wrong, and we don't like them, and we have to figure out how to deal with them, and on and on. Racism, guys, is a real evil. With everything we're going to talk about here, you guys need to hear me say things like this, and we need to hear this as the body of Christ. It is a real evil. It has been a real evil, and it is still a real evil. But it shows up in ways that we don't always expect, and it turns out that it's showing up in ways that are being taught and promoted in our culture today. Stick with me. Stick with me. I firmly believe <clears throat> that we are at a point in our culture today, with our culture trying to wrestle with these very real issues of ethnic tension and racism and oppression and power and so on and so forth, really trying to wrestle with genuine issues, what has happened is this. We're at a point where our status, our perceived status, our chosen status, actually determines our value in culture, either as the oppressed or as the oppressor with power dynamics. Here's part of what's happening in our culture today. What we think of traditionally as morality is being replaced with a moral system that is based on gender, ethnicity, sexual identity, and on and on. What we traditionally understand as a moral system of the way life should be lived is being replaced by a different moral system altogether. And keep your eyes on our first thought this morning that without Christ, we tend to get relationships wrong, not right. We tend to get them wrong. <clears throat> so what do I mean by that? Here are some examples. Some of these examples um, you guys know and feel and, and maybe even wrestle with and have to confront where you, where you work or where you go to school. How is it that we get to a place where it is common in many circles to want to vote simply based on gender or skin color alone? Well, how is it we get to a place where there are entire circles of people who want to vote based on the principle, no more white men? How do we get there? Why is that a big deal in our culture in a lot of circles? How is it that men who self-identify as women are competing in more and more women's sports? Just over the weekend, it was either Friday night or Saturday, the company Nike actually came out in favor of men identifying as women competing in women's sports. How do we get to a point like that. What's going on in our culture? Why are there bathrooms and more and more uh, public places and even public schools that are being quote-unquote desegregated along gender lines? How does that happen? Now these are examples of things that you and I see in the news or we actually deal with. Here's one I guarantee you none of you have actually run across. 
And given the stuff that I read, I happen to run across fun, fun stuff like this from time to time. There's, a, uh, <clears throat> there's an academic, a peer-reviewed academic journal called Progress in Human Geography. In 2016, they published a paper on what's called feminist glaciology, or the study of glaciers from a feminist point of view. Now, this is not, there's not one of these. There's now hundreds of these. The paper argued that studying glaciers from a feminist point of view will lead to, quote, more just and equitable science in human ice interactions. How do we get here? How does this happen? I understand how this feels. I understand how this sounds. I'm not intending to be mocking. I'm just saying, how do we get here? There is, um, here's how we get here. There's an academic theory generally known as critical theory, okay? I'm going to talk about this for a couple minutes. Some of you have heard this phrase, some of you have not, but as we sort of explain critical theory, a lot of you are going to go, oh, that's what this is called, okay? Now, critical theory is a great big issue. It's a great big issue. There's a lot going on, and we've only got a few minutes to talk about it this morning, but I want to deal with some basic issues. So critical theory is not just in parts of the academy or parts of sort of the academic universe. It's, it's sort of growing in acceptance in other parts of the academic universe as well. It's also popular in a lot of popular level books and literature. More and more, it's becoming the foundation of public school curriculums that different states are purchasing for the schools and so forth. So it's not just progress in human geology that, that publishes these papers. Some, it's just kind of everywhere, and it's affecting a lot of the world around us. What is it? Why is it important? What is critical theory? It is a theory that studies how power works to create systems of oppression and exploitation. Critical theory is a theory that studies how power works to create systems of exploitation and oppression. Okay, that's just kind of a dictionary definition of what critical theory is. Now, many of us have maybe not interacted with the phrase critical theory, but when we hear people talk about social justice, what's behind that, the vast majority of, time, of the time, is critical theory. So when we hear this phrase social justice and what is sort of promoted um, under the umbrella of social justice, and we sort of ask ourselves, how can this happen, or what, what's going on here? Here's what's going on here. Here's the background. Here's, here's, here's what's happening. So that's what it is. Why is this important? This is important because this is how our culture, or at least larger pieces of our culture more and more, are defining what the walls are that divide us. They're defining what divides us and then telling us how to take those walls down. So redefining all of that. That's why this is important for us. How many of you are still with me? A couple of you. Okay, good. Good. I'm going to give you guys three core concepts to critical theory in general. And again, like I said, there's, this is a huge field of thought, but there are a handful of core ideas that guide critical theory and what we know of, what we sort of watch in the culture around us as social justice. Here's the foundation of this theory. I'm going to give you these three things, then I'm going to define them a little bit, or at least describe them a little bit, and then I'm going to interact with them through the lens of the gospel, through the lens of the kinds of things that Paul is saying here in Ephesians chapter 2. 
Three core concepts. First, dominant groups maintain power and oppression by imposing their ideology on everyone else. <clears throat> That's kind of the first big concept. The, the fundamental idea behind critical theory is how does power work? It creates systems of exploitation um, and oppression, and so we're hunting for those systems. We hunt for who's dominant, why they're dominant, how they express their power, and how we can resist all of that. So the moral corollary to this thought is that everywhere we find oppression, we must resist it, okay? Dominant groups maintain power and oppression by imposing their ideology on everyone. Thought number two, the lived experience. Now, that's a phrase that you hear from time to time, too, someone's lived experience. It's kind of a redundant phrase, but it's a common phrase now. The lived experience of oppressed groups gives them a unique and unassailable insight into reality. They can describe their experience in life, and because they belong to an oppressed group, you can't question it. You can't criticize it. You, you can only sort of receive it. This is taught inside of critical theory. And the third big idea is this. It is fundamentally concerned with social justice and getting rid of all forms of cultural oppression. That's, that's, the, that's the moral corollary. Where we find it, we have to get rid of it. All right, let's go back to big idea number one, and let's tease it out a little bit and hopefully make sense of some of the terms and phrases and ideas that we hear more and more and more that maybe confuse us or frustrate us or we don't quite know exactly what to do with them. So, dominant groups maintain power and oppression by imposing their ideology on everyone. This is where the phrase and concept of white privilege comes from. And the idea is this, is that if you are white in our culture specifically, you benefit from this whether you know it or not. And while something like that is simply going to be true in certain kinds of areas of life, what critical theory does is doesn't say it's true here and not true here, it absolutizes it. It says that if you are a part of that group, you always, everywhere benefit from being a part of the dominant in power group of people. Now, one of the magic things that's built inside of critical theory, and these things bug me because I've been dealing with stuff like this for over 20 years. 20 years ago, I did my master's thesis work on postmodernism, and I've been watching these kinds of theories creep up over and over again, and they have these triggers, these, these rational triggers built inside of them that they believe keeps them from being, uh, it, it, it um, gives them an immunity to criticism. So, White, this is how right, white privilege works in critical theory. If you deny that you are a beneficiary of this, it's because you've been blinded by your benefits. You, just, you, don't, you don't know what you're talking about. Um, it's a certain form of what they call internalized oppression. You don't yet know how much you have been oppressing other people simply because of the color of your skin in our culture. So you can't escape it. This is how this concept works. And again... While it may be true in certain circumstances, what critical theory does is says it's always true all the time in all circumstances. There's no getting out of it. Another word that fits into this core concept that we hear sometimes and maybe don't know what it means is the word intersectionality. How many of you have heard the word intersectionality? All right. So not everybody belongs to a single group. <clears throat> A lot of people belong to several different kinds of groups, depending on who your parents were, what your economic status was, what your background is. You may actually belong to several of these groups. 
you may belong to the intersection of several of these. So intersectionality is the study of how people's lives sit at the intersections of several different forms of oppression. So the more intersections that, that sort of meet inside of your experience in life, the more oppressed you are. And again, if an individual denies that they feel that, uh, that oppression or are part of that oppression, the return is, well, you're just suffering from internalized oppression. You're wrong, and this is, you just don't know how all of this works. So dominant groups maintain power and oppression by imposing their ideology on everyone. Let's think about this through the lens of the gospel for a couple of seconds. What ends up happening is that critical theory reduces individuals to the class that they belong to. Your skin color defines you and makes it impossible for you as an individual to be either innocent or guilty. If an individual who belongs to a certain class of people says, I in fact believe I am innocent of a certain kind of hatred or racism or oppression, the return is, nope, that's your skin color. You are by default part of the problem. You are by default part of the power system that must be resisted. To my ears, that sounds like racism. And everywhere it shows up, the gospel says, stop it, right? The reduction of individuals to the class that they belong to becomes unsustainable. Thus, you get this matter of intersectionality. And that field of study is just going nuts. It's going absolutely crazy because you've got all kinds of different new avenues in which you might be sitting at you know, the corner of oppression. One of the latest um, uh, one of the latest assertions inside of critical theories that we've discovered a brand new group of oppressed people, and they are children. And the reason children are oppressed, they suffer. I am not making this up. Children in homes suffer from 10 to 15 years of unpaid labor and the ideological dominance of their parents. So parents <laughs> have an interesting response to that, don't they? Right? But again, this is how it works. It's not thinking in terms that we would sort of understand as traditional uh, family structures or moral structures. Remember, we have a brand new structure of morality being placed upon how all of these things work. And guys, it turns out that the gospel, and we keep learning this throughout the book of Ephesians, the gospel speaks to individuals and to their relationship with Jesus. Every one of us is a sinner in need of grace. And every one of us can receive the grace of God and life can be changed. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or how about this core concept number two? The lived experience of oppressed groups gives them a unique and unassailable insight into reality. Of course it gives them a unique insight into reality, but it is not unassailable. Um, critical theory teaches this, that if you assert an objective truth or an objective morality, it is an automatic form of oppression. And this has been in these theories for a very long time now. The belief that there is truth is itself a power play and must be rejected. So this is where we get things like rationality and logic are the result of white male hegemonic power. So they were literally right. We have to lay down rationality, we have to lay down logic, and we have to think in brand new ways because white men have imposed this upon us, right? This is just how critical theory thinks. 
The gospel of Jesus Christ, now this, okay, now this is powerful. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the ultimate objective story that belongs to every single one of us. It is, when it comes to critical theory, the most oppressive power play there is to sell somebody that they need Jesus Christ. So critical theory, in the end, in a lot of its expressions, insulates people from the gospel of Jesus Christ by default. Before the gospel is presented or dealt with, it is just simply said, that is hegemonic power and oppression, and we have to resist it immediately. So it insulates people from the gospel of Jesus Christ often. And then it's fundamentally concerned with social justice and getting rid of all forms of cultural oppression. So what is moral and immoral now is, uh, according to critical theory, is being defined by what fits into the box of social justice or outside of the box of social justice. So we watch often certain forms of violence inside of our culture that are not condemned by the teachers and adherents of critical theory. Well, why on earth aren't these forms of violence condemned by these groups of people? It's because, according to this theory, these forms of violence are justified if they're done against the right group of people. So moral systems and structures are completely changing. The things that we would understand as traditional morality, things like the fruit of the Spirit, are just not really a part of the equation, or sometimes they are determined to be oppressive power plays, and we have to resist them at every turn. So, guys, I'm going I'm to say this, and I know that saying this, some people who will hear this um, will get grumpy with me. That's okay. That's why I escape out the side door, and you don't see me again for another seven days, and all of your anger is calmed down, and we get to move on. <clears throat> Critical theory tends to only see people through their physical, social, and sexual differences. It is our current form of social prejudice. It is. Okay, now this is important. Without Christ, we tend to get these relationships wrong. Even when, and this is what critical theory does, this is what people who are sincere about social justice do. They see legitimate hatred, legitimate oppression. They want to do something about it, but we do something about it without Christ, and instead of alleviating hostility, Christ kills hostility. So instead of killing hostility, we find new forms of hostility to build between each other. Christ does something different. There's a fascinating man. His name is Dr. Carl Ellis, Jr., and he's been dealing with racial reconciliation and racial justice now for decades. He currently teaches at Reformed Theological Seminary. And because of, by, by the way, critical theory is not just sort of out there in the atmosphere as we watch the news and on and on. It's becoming more and more a part of evangelical theology in certain circles. So Carl Ellis Jr. recently wrote this great big long article. And I've got, by the way, the notes that I give you, I have some actual places to go where you can read up on these kinds of things and sort of learn some of this uh, for your own. So he writes this wonderful long article because he has been critiquing critical theory in his classes for a long time and in his role as a guy who deals with racial reconciliation. So here's part of what uh, Dr. Ellis says about this. And he's talking about interacting with his students through the course of a semester. Many are surprised to find how impotent they are, the solutions of critical theory. 
Many are surprised to find how impotent they are when over the course of a semester, the biblical gospel is held up against those ideologies. The solutions that critical theory propose are bankrupt. They cannot bring life. So when we try to tackle genuine problems of racism and oppression and social tension, when we do it without Christ, we tend to get the solutions terribly wrong. We actually end up creating other problems in other directions instead of doing what Christ has called us to do inside of the church. Let me please be as abundantly clear as I can possibly be at a moment like this. I am criticizing a theory. I am not criticizing the belief that racism and oppression exists. Is racism a real thing? Yes. Does racism exist inside of the church? Yes, it does. Some of the darkest stains in the life of the church of Jesus Christ have to do with those periods in time and pockets and places when we have not done what Paul has told us we're supposed to do in Jesus Christ. Does oppression exist? Yes, it does. Do power plays exist that put people in boxes and devalue them? Yes, they do. Do we need to solve all of that by buying into critical theory, hook, line, and sinker? We don't. We can actually look at these things through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can actually listen to how the Apostle Paul explains these things to us, and we can figure out how to actually live these things here and now in our situation. So I believe, guys, that what Paul preaches, what the gospel preaches, is the solution to these issues. Learning who we are in Jesus Christ. It is the one thing, I believe, that eliminates these problems and unites us in the way that we were actually created to be united. These things are all true. Remember that language, in Christ Jesus. And they need to be true in the ways that we treat each other, in the ways that we treat other human beings. These things need to be true in the life of the church of Jesus Christ. Christ is our unity. Listen to this language again. Let's go back into the text. Verse 16. It might reconcile us both, us all, to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing all of those hostilities. And he came and preached peace those who had been cast far off by culture, and peace to those who are near, for through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. Instead of creating new hostilities to fix the old one, Christ kills them. Instead of creating several new bodies of Christ for different groups of people, Christ makes one body in Him and in Him alone. Instead of creating several ways of access to the Father, He says we all have one access through the Spirit to the Father. Later on in the text, Paul's going to say, there is one Lord, there is one faith, there is one baptism. This is important to Paul. This is important to the witness of the church of Jesus Christ. So Christ becomes our identity, not just me individually, our identity collectively as the body of Jesus Christ. 
So often, in so many ways, the world wants to enslave people to their role or their perceived role in society. Some imposed sense of this is who you are and all you ever will be. Christ wants to free everybody, pull them into himself, and make everyone his child. This is radical stuff, what Christ does, as opposed to what we tend to do in our own broken flesh. So, guys, the child of God has something far deeper than all of those things, far more life-changing, far more hopeful than a lot of those other things. And listen to this language, the kinds of things Paul has been saying about you individually and about us, about everyone who belongs to Jesus Christ. And this is language of identity, learning who I am, learning who we are, He said in chapter 2, verse 6, that you, if you're a child of God, you've been raised up and you've been seated with Christ in the heavenlies. That thing in you that is eternal is no longer held by this world. It is held by Christ himself in the heavens. So he says, so now I need you to put your mind on those things. I need you to put your life on those things. I need to put your lifestyle on those things instead of the things that are below. This is identity. This is who we are. This is lifestyle change for the Christian. We are, he says in verse 10, the workmanship of God. You are the workmanship of God. Long before you were born, Paul says God was going to create you to live the kind of life he designed you to live. This is identity. We have been brought near that beautiful language, and it is Christ Jesus who has brought us near. Christ is the one who brings us all peace, he says in verse 14. Christ is everyone's access by the Spirit to one Father. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ. So here's this final thought. In this passage of Scripture, my identity in Jesus Christ is about the other. My identity in Jesus Christ is about learning who you are in Jesus Christ. If I'm going to believe these kinds of things about what Christ has given me and how he has made me, that doesn't make me the one person on the face of the planet who has all of that. That means you too. That means so do you. That means now as a follower of Jesus Christ, this is how I should perceive you and treat you and love you. You, he is telling me, are the workmanship of Christ. Why would I demean that? Why would I build walls of hatred in my heart about that? If I have received this grace, I'm going to learn how to give this grace every way I possibly can. It's about seeing everyone created by God as precious individuals created in His image who have been created for His good work, who deserve the love of the body of Christ, who, love, who deserve the truth of Jesus Christ. This is part of what needs to make the church different, that we live the grace that we have been given in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.